Chapter 5 All is Lost After Joseph brought the gold plates home, treasure seekers tried for weeks to steal them. To keep the record safe, he had to move it from place to place, hiding the plates under the hearth, beneath the floor of his father's shop, and in piles of grain. He could never let his guard down. Curious neighbors stopped by the house and begged him to show them the record. Joseph always refused, even when someone offered to pay him. He was determined to care for the plates, trusting in the Lord's promise that if he did everything he could, they would be protected. These disruptions often kept him from examining the plates and learning more about the Urim and Thummim. He knew the interpreters were supposed to help him translate the plates, but he had never used seer stones to read an ancient language. He was anxious to begin the work, but it was not obvious to him how to do it. As Joseph studied the plates, a respected landowner in Palmyra named Martin Harris had become interested in his work. Martin was old enough to be Joseph's father and had sometimes hired Joseph to help on his land. Martin had heard about the gold plates but had thought little about them until Joseph's mother invited him to visit with her son. Joseph was out working when Martin stopped by, so he questioned Emma and other family members about the plates. When Joseph arrived home, Martin caught him by the arm and asked for more details. Joseph told him about the gold plates and Moroni's instructions to translate and publish the writing on them. If it is the devil's work, Martin said, I will have nothing to do with it. But if it was the Lord's work, he wanted to help Joseph proclaim it to the world. Joseph let Martin heft the plates in the lockbox. Martin could tell something heavy was there, but he was not convinced it was a set of gold plates. You must not blame me for not taking your word, he told Joseph. When Martin got home after midnight, he crept into his bedroom and prayed, promising God to give all he had if he could know that Joseph was doing divine work. As he prayed, Martin felt a still, small voice speak to his soul. He knew then that the plates were from God, and he knew he had to help Joseph share their message. Late in 1827, Emma learned she was pregnant and wrote to her parents. It had been almost a year since she and Joseph had married, and her father and mother were still unhappy. But the Hales agreed to let the young couple return to Harmony so Emma could give birth near her family. Although it would take him away from his own parents and siblings, Joseph was eager to go. People in New York were still trying to steal the plates, and moving to a new place could provide the peace and privacy he needed to do the Lord's work. Unfortunately, he was in debt and had no money to make the move. Hoping to get his finances in order, Joseph went to town to settle some of his debts. While he was in a store making a payment, Martin Harris strode up to him. Here, Mr. Smith, is fifty dollars, he said. I give it to you to do the Lord's work. Joseph was nervous about accepting the money and promised to repay it, but Martin said not to worry about it. The money was a gift, and he called on everyone in the room to witness that he had given it freely. Soon after, Joseph paid his debts and loaded his wagon. He and Emma then left for Harmony with the gold plates hidden in a barrel of beans. The couple arrived at the Hales' spacious home about a week later. Before long, Emma's father demanded to see the gold plates, but Joseph said he could only show him the box where he kept them. Annoyed, Isaac picked up the lockbox and felt its weight, yet he remained skeptical. He said Joseph could not keep it in the house unless he showed him what was inside. 
With Emma's father around, translating would not be easy, but Joseph tried his best. Assisted by Emma, he copied many of the strange characters from the plates to paper. Then, for several weeks, he tried to translate them with the Urim and Thummim. The process required him to do more than look into the interpreters. He had to be humble and exercise faith as he studied the characters. A few months later, Martin came to Harmony. He said he felt called by the Lord to travel as far as New York City to consult experts in ancient languages. He hoped they could translate the characters. Joseph copied several more characters from the plates, wrote down his translation, and handed the paper to Martin. He and Emma then watched as their friend headed east to consult with distinguished scholars. When Martin arrived in New York City, he went to see Charles Anton, a professor of Latin and Greek at Columbia College. Professor Anton was a young man, about 15 years younger than Martin, and was best known for publishing a popular encyclopedia on Greek and Roman culture. He had also begun collecting stories about American Indians. Anton was a rigid scholar who resented interruptions, but he welcomed Martin and studied the characters and translation Joseph had provided. Although the professor did not know Egyptian, he had read some studies on the language and knew what it looked like. Looking at the characters, he saw some similarities with Egyptian and told Martin the translation was correct. Martin showed him more characters and Anton examined them. He said they contained characters from many ancient languages and gave Martin a certificate verifying their authenticity. He also recommended that he show the characters to another scholar named Samuel Mitchell, who used to teach at Columbia. He is very learned in these ancient languages, Anton said. And I have no doubt he will be able to give you some satisfaction. Martin placed the certificate in his pocket, but just as he was leaving, Anton called him back. He wanted to know how Joseph found the gold plates. An angel of God, Martin said, revealed it unto him. He testified that the translation of the plates would change the world and save it from destruction. And now that he had proof of their authenticity, He intended to sell his farm and donate money to get the translation published. Let me see that certificate, Anton said. Martin reached into his pocket and gave it to him. Anton tore it to pieces and said there was no such thing as ministering angels. If Joseph wanted the plates translated, he could bring them to Columbia and let a scholar translate them. Martin explained that part of the plates were sealed and that Joseph was not allowed to show them to anyone. I cannot read a sealed book, said Anton. He warned Martin that Joseph was probably cheating him. Beware of rogues, he said. Martin left Professor Anton and called on Samuel Mitchell. He received Martin politely, listened to his story, and looked at the characters and translation. He could not make sense of them, but he said they reminded him of Egyptian hieroglyphics and were the writings of an extinct nation. Martin left the city a short time later and returned to Harmony more convinced than ever that Joseph had ancient gold plates and the power to translate them. He told Joseph about his interviews with the professors and reasoned that if some of the most educated men in America could not translate the book, Joseph had to do it. I cannot, Joseph said, overwhelmed by the task, for I am not learned. But he knew the Lord had prepared the interpreters so he could translate the plates. Martin agreed. He planned to go back to Palmyra, set his business in order, and return as soon as possible to serve as Joseph's scribe. In April 
Emma and Joseph were living in a home along the Susquehanna River, not far from her parents' house. Now well along in her pregnancy, Emma often acted as Joseph's scribe after he began translating the record. One day, while he translated, Joseph suddenly grew pale. Emma, did Jerusalem have a wall around it? he asked. Yes, she said, recalling descriptions of it in the Bible. Oh, Joseph said with relief, I was afraid I had been deceived. Emma marveled that her husband's lack of knowledge in history and scripture did not hinder the translation. Joseph could hardly write a coherent letter, yet hour after hour she sat close beside him while he dictated the record without the aid of any book or manuscript. She knew only God could inspire him to translate as he did. In time, Martin returned from Palmyra and took over as scribe, giving Emma a chance to rest before the baby came. But rest did not come easy. Martin's wife, Lucy, had insisted on coming with him to Harmony, and both Harrises had strong personalities. Lucy was suspicious of Martin's desire to support Joseph financially and was angry that he had gone to New York City without her. When he told her he was going to Harmony to help with translation, she had invited herself along, determined to see the plates. Lucy was losing her hearing, and when she could not understand what people were saying, she sometimes thought they were criticizing her. She also had little sense of privacy. After Joseph refused to show her the plates, she started searching the house, rifling through the family's chests, cupboards, and trunks. Joseph had little choice but to hide the plates in the woods. Lucy soon left the house and lodged with a neighbor. Emma had her chests and cupboards to herself again, but now Lucy was telling the neighbors that Joseph was out to get Martin's money. After weeks of causing trouble, Lucy went home to Palmyra. With peace restored, Joseph and Martin translated quickly. Joseph was growing into his divine role as a seer and revelator. Looking into the interpreter's or another seer stone, he was able to translate whether the plates were in front of him or wrapped in one of Emma's linen cloths on the table. Throughout April, May, and early June, Emma listened to the rhythm of Joseph dictating the record. He spoke slowly but clearly, pausing occasionally to wait for Martin to say written after he had caught up to what Joseph had said. Emma also took turns as scribe and was amazed how after interruptions and breaks, Joseph always picked up where he left off without any prompting. Soon, it was time for Emma's baby to be born. The pile of manuscript pages had grown thick, and Martin had become convinced that if he could let his wife read the translation, she would see its value and stop interfering with their work. He also hoped Lucy would be pleased with how he had spent his time and money to help bring forth God's word. One day, Martin asked Joseph for permission to take the manuscript to Palmyra for a few weeks. Remembering how Lucy Harris had acted when she visited the house, Joseph was wary of the idea. Yet he wanted to please Martin, who had believed him when so many others had doubted his word. Unsure what to do, Joseph prayed for guidance, and the Lord told him not to let Martin take the pages. But Martin was sure showing them to his wife would change things, and he begged Joseph to ask again. Joseph did so, but the answer was the same. Martin pressed him to ask a third time, however, and this time God allowed them to do as they pleased. Joseph told Martin he could take the pages for two weeks if he covenanted to keep them locked up and show them only to certain family members. 
Martin made the promise and returned to Palmyra, manuscript in hand. After Martin left, Moroni appeared to Joseph and took the interpreters from him. The day after Martin's departure, Emma endured an agonizing labor and gave birth to a boy. The baby was frail and sickly and did not live long. The ordeal left Emma physically drained and emotionally devastated, and for a time it seemed she might die too. Joseph tended to her constantly, never leaving her side for long. After two weeks, Emma's health began to improve, and her thoughts turned to Martin and the manuscript. I feel so uneasy, she told Joseph, that I cannot rest and shall not be at ease until I know something about what Mr. Harris is doing with it. She urged Joseph to find Martin, but Joseph did not want to leave her. Send for my mother, she said, and she shall stay with me while you are gone. Joseph took a stagecoach north. He ate and slept little during the journey, afraid that he had offended the Lord by not listening when he said not to let Martin take the manuscript. The sun was rising when he arrived at his parents' home in Manchester. The Smiths were preparing breakfast and sent Martin an invitation to join them. By eight o'clock the meal was on the table, but Martin had not come. Joseph and the family started to grow uneasy as they waited for him. Finally, after more than four hours had passed, Martin appeared in the distance, walking slowly toward the house, his eyes fixed on the ground in front of him. At the gate he paused, sat on the fence, and pulled his hat down over his eyes. He then came inside and sat down to eat in silence. The family watched as Martin picked up his utensils as if ready to eat, then dropped them. "'I have lost my soul,' he cried, pressing his hands on his temples. "'I have lost my soul.' Joseph jumped up. "'Martin, have you lost that manuscript?' "'Yes,' Martin said. "'It is gone, and I know not where.' "'Oh, my God, my God,' Joseph groaned, clenching his fists. "'All is lost.' He started pacing the floor. He did not know what to do. Go back, he ordered Martin. Search again. It is all in vain, Martin cried. I have looked every place in the house. I have even ripped open beds and pillows, and I know it is not there. Must I return to my wife with such a tale? Joseph feared the news would kill her. And how shall I appear before the Lord? His mother tried to comfort him. She said maybe the Lord would forgive him if he repented humbly, but Joseph was sobbing now, furious at himself for not obeying the Lord the first time. He could barely eat for the rest of the day. He stayed the night and left the next morning for harmony. As Lucy watched him go, her heart was heavy. It seemed everything they had hoped for as a family, everything that had brought them joy over the last few years, had fled in a moment. Chapter 6 The Gift and Power of God when Joseph returned to Harmony in the summer of 1828, Moroni appeared to him again and took the plates away. If you are sufficiently humble and penitent, the angel said, you will receive them again on the 22nd of September. Darkness clouded Joseph's mind. He knew he had been wrong to ignore God's will and trust Martin with the manuscript. Now God no longer trusted him with the plates or the interpreters. He felt like he deserved any punishment the heavens sent his way. Weighed down with guilt and regret, he went to his knees, confessed his sins, and pleaded for forgiveness. He reflected on where he had gone wrong and what he could do better if the Lord let him translate again.
One day in July, as Joseph was walking a short distance from his house, Moroni appeared to him. The angel handed him the interpreters, and Joseph saw a divine message in them. The works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. The words were reassuring, but they soon gave way to reproof. How strict were your commandments, the Lord said. You should not have feared man more than God. He commanded Joseph to be more careful with sacred things. The record on the gold plates was more important than Martin's reputation or Joseph's desire to please people. God had prepared it to renew his ancient covenant and teach all people to rely on Jesus Christ for salvation. The Lord urged Joseph to remember his mercy. Repent of that which thou hast done, he commanded, and thou art still chosen. Once again, he called Joseph to be his prophet and seer, yet he warned him to heed his word. Except thou do this, he declared, thou shalt be delivered up and become as other men, and have no more gift. That fall, Joseph's parents traveled south to Harmony. Nearly two months had passed since Joseph left their home in Manchester, and they had heard nothing from him. They worried the summer's tragedies had devastated him. In a matter of weeks, he had lost his first child, nearly lost his wife, and lost the manuscript pages. They wanted to make sure he and Emma were well. Less than a mile from their destination, Joseph Sr. and Lucy were overjoyed to see Joseph standing in the road ahead of them, looking calm and happy. He told them about losing the confidence of God, repenting of his sins, and receiving the revelation. The Lord's rebuke had stung him, but like prophets of old, he wrote the revelation down for others to read. It was the first time he had ever recorded the Lord's word to him. Joseph also told his parents that Moroni had since returned the plates and interpreters. The angel seemed pleased, Joseph recounted. He told me that the Lord loved me for my faithfulness and humility. The record was now safely stowed in the house, hidden in a trunk. Emma writes for me now, Joseph told them, but the angel said that the Lord would send someone to write for me, and I trust that it will be so. The following spring, Martin Harris traveled to Harmony with some bad news. His wife had filed a complaint in court, claiming Joseph was a fraud who pretended to translate gold plates. Martin now expected a summons to testify in court. He would have to declare that Joseph had fooled him, or Lucy would charge him with deceit as well. Martin pushed Joseph to give him more evidence that the plates were real. He wanted to tell the court all about the translation, but he worried people would not believe him. Lucy, after all, had searched the smith's house and never found the record. And though he had served as Joseph's scribe for two months, Martin had never seen the plates either and could not testify that he had. Joseph took the question to the Lord and received an answer for his friend. The Lord would not tell Martin what to say in court, nor would he provide him any more evidence until Martin chose to be humble and exercise faith. If they will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph, he said, if it were possible that you should show them all these things which I have committed unto you. The Lord promised to treat Martin mercifully, however, if he did as Joseph had done that summer and humbled himself, trusted in God, and learned from his mistakes. Three faithful witnesses would see the plates in due time, the Lord said, and Martin could be one of them if he stopped seeking the approval of others. Before closing his words, the Lord made a declaration. 
If the people of this generation harden not their hearts, he said, I will establish my church. Joseph reflected on these words as Martin copied the revelation. He and Emma then listened as Martin read it back to check its accuracy. As they read, Emma's father came into the room and listened. When they finished, he asked whose words they were. The words of Jesus Christ, Joseph and Emma explained. I consider the whole of it a delusion, Isaac said. Abandon it. Ignoring Emma's father, Martin took his copy of the Revelation and boarded the stagecoach for home. He had come to Harmony seeking evidence of the plates, and he left with a revelation testifying of their reality. He could not use it in court, but he returned to Palmyra knowing the Lord was aware of him. Later, when Martin stood before the judge, he offered a simple, powerful testimony. With a hand raised to heaven, he witnessed of the truth of the gold plates and declared that he had freely given Joseph fifty dollars to do the Lord's work. With no evidence to prove Lucy's accusations, the court dismissed the case. Joseph, meanwhile, continued the translation, praying the Lord would soon send him another scribe. Back in Manchester, a young man named Oliver Cowdery was staying with Joseph's parents. Oliver was a year younger than Joseph, and in the fall of 1828, he had begun teaching school about a mile south of the Smith's farm. Teachers often boarded with the families of their students, and when Oliver heard rumors about Joseph and the gold plates, he asked if he could stay with the Smiths. At first, he gleaned few details from the family. The stolen manuscript and local gossip had made them wary to the point of silence. But during the winter of 1828 to 1829, as Oliver taught the Smith children, he earned the trust of his hosts. Around this time, Joseph Sr. had come back from a trip to Harmony with a revelation declaring that the Lord was about to begin a marvelous work. By then, Oliver had proven to be a sincere seeker of truth, and Joseph's parents opened up to him about their son's divine calling. What they said captivated Oliver, and he longed to help with the translation. Like Joseph, Oliver was dissatisfied with modern churches and believed in a God of miracles who still revealed his will to people. But Joseph and the gold plates were far away, and Oliver did not know how he could help the work if he stayed in Manchester. One spring day, as rain was falling hard against the smith's roof, Oliver told the family he wanted to go to Harmony to help Joseph when the school term was over. Lucy and Joseph Sr. urged him to ask the Lord if his desires were right. Retiring to his bed, Oliver prayed privately to know if what he had heard about the gold plates was true. The Lord showed him a vision of the gold plates and Joseph's efforts to translate them. A peaceful feeling rested over him, and he knew then that he should volunteer to be Joseph's scribe. Oliver told no one about his prayer, but as soon as the school term ended, he and Joseph's brother Samuel set out on foot for Harmony, more than a hundred miles away. The road was cold and muddy from spring rain, and Oliver had a frostbitten toe by the time he and Samuel arrived at Joseph and Emma's door. Yet he was eager to meet the couple and see for himself how the Lord worked through the young prophet. Once Oliver arrived in Harmony, it was as if he had always been there. Joseph talked with him late into the night, listened to his story, and answered his questions. It was obvious Oliver had a good education, and Joseph readily accepted his offer to act as scribe. After Oliver's arrival, Joseph's first task was to secure a place to work. 
He asked Oliver to draft a contract in which Joseph promised to pay his father-in-law for the small frame home where he and Emma lived, as well as the barn, farmland, and nearby spring. Mindful of their daughter's well-being, Emma's parents agreed to the terms and promised to help calm neighbors' fears about Joseph. Meanwhile, Joseph and Oliver started translating. They worked well together, weeks on end, frequently with Emma in the same room going about her daily work. Sometimes Joseph translated by looking through the interpreters and reading in English the characters on the plates. Often, he found a single seer stone to be more convenient. He would put the seer stone in his hat, place his face into the hat to block out the light, and peer at the stone. Light from the stone would shine in the darkness, revealing words that Joseph dictated as Oliver rapidly copied them down. Under the Lord's direction, Joseph did not try to retranslate what he had lost. Instead, he and Oliver continued forward in the record. The Lord revealed that Satan had enticed wicked men to take the pages, alter their words, and use them to cast doubt on the translation. But the Lord assured Joseph that he had inspired the ancient prophets who prepared the plates to include another fuller account of the lost material. I will confound those who have altered my words, the Lord told Joseph. I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. Acting as Joseph's scribe thrilled Oliver. Day after day he listened as his friend dictated the complex history of two large civilizations, the Nephites and the Lamanites. He learned of righteous and wicked kings, of people who fell into captivity and were delivered from it, of an ancient prophet who used seer stones to translate records recovered from fields filled with bones. Like Joseph, that prophet was a revelator and seer, blessed with the gift and power of God. The record testified again and again of Jesus Christ, and Oliver saw how prophets led an ancient church and how ordinary men and women did the work of God. Yet Oliver still had many questions about the Lord's work, and he hungered for answers. Joseph sought a revelation for him through the Urim and Thummim, and the Lord responded, If you will ask of me, you shall receive, he declared. If thou wilt inquire, thou shalt know mysteries which are great and marvelous. The Lord also urged Oliver to remember the witness he had received before coming to Harmony, which Oliver had kept to himself. Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? The Lord asked. If I have told you things which no man knoweth, have you not received a witness? Oliver was astonished. He immediately told Joseph about his secret prayer and the divine witness he had received. No one could have known about it except God, he said, and he now knew the work was true. They returned to work, and Oliver began to wonder if he could translate as well. He believed that God could work through instruments like seer stones, and he had occasionally used a divining rod to find water and minerals. Yet he was unsure if his rod worked by the power of God. The process of revelation was still a mystery to him. Joseph again brought Oliver's questions to the Lord, and the Lord told Oliver that he had power to acquire knowledge if he asked in faith. The Lord confirmed that Oliver's rod worked by the power of God, like Aaron's rod in the Old Testament. He then taught Oliver more about revelation. I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, he declared. Behold, this is the spirit of revelation. He also told Oliver that he could translate the record like Joseph did as long as he relied on faith. Remember, the Lord said, 
without faith you can do nothing. After the revelation, Oliver was excited to translate. He followed Joseph's example, but when the words did not come easily, he grew frustrated and confused. Joseph saw his friend's struggle and sympathized. It had taken him time to tune his heart and mind to the work of translation, but Oliver seemed to think he could master it quickly. It was not enough to have a spiritual gift. He had to cultivate and develop it over time for use in God's work. Oliver soon gave up on translating and asked Joseph why he had not been successful. Joseph asked the Lord, You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought save it was to ask me, the Lord replied. You must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. The Lord instructed Oliver to be patient. It is not expedient that you should translate now, he said. The work which you are called to do is to write for my servant Joseph. He promised Oliver other opportunities to translate later, but for now he was the scribe and Joseph was the seer. Chapter 7 Fellow Servants The spring of 1829 was cold and wet well into May. While farmers around Harmony stayed indoors, putting off their spring planting until the weather improved, Joseph and Oliver translated as much of the record as they could. They had come to an account of what happened among the Nephites and Lamanites when Jesus died in Jerusalem. It told of massive earthquakes and storms that devastated the people and altered the shape of the land. Some cities sank into the ground, while others caught fire and burned. Lightning split the sky for hours, and the sun disappeared, shrouding the survivors in thick darkness. For three days, people cried out, mourning for their dead. Finally, the voice of Jesus Christ pierced the gloom. "'Will ye not now return unto me?' he asked, "'and repent of your sins and be converted, that I may heal you?' He lifted the darkness, and the people repented. Soon, many of them gathered to a temple in a place called Bountiful, where they spoke of the incredible changes to the land. While the people talked with one another, they saw the Son of God descend out of heaven. I am Jesus Christ, he said, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. He stayed among them for a time, taught his gospel, and commanded them to be baptized by immersion for the remission of sins. Whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved, he declared. They are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. Before ascending to heaven, he gave righteous men authority to baptize those who believed in him. As they translated, Joseph and Oliver were struck by these teachings. Like his brother Alvin, Joseph had never been baptized, and he wanted to know more about the ordinance and the authority necessary to perform it. On May 15, 1829, the rains cleared, and Joseph and Oliver walked into the woods near the Susquehanna River. Kneeling, they asked God about baptism and the remission of sins. As they prayed, the voice of the Redeemer spoke peace to them, and an angel appeared in a cloud of light. He introduced himself as John the Baptist and placed his hands on their heads. Joy filled their hearts as God's love surrounded them. Upon you, my fellow servants, John declared, in the name of Messiah I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. The angel's voice was mild, but it seemed to pierce Joseph and Oliver to the core. 
He explained that the Aaronic priesthood authorized them to perform baptisms, and he commanded them to baptize each other after he departed. He also said they would receive additional priesthood power later, which would give them authority to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost on each other and on those they baptized. After John the Baptist left, Joseph and Oliver walked to the river and waded in. Joseph baptized Oliver first, and as soon as he came out of the water, Oliver began to prophesy about things that would soon happen. Oliver then baptized Joseph, who rose from the river prophesying about the rise of Christ's church, which the Lord had promised to establish among them. Following John the Baptist's instructions, they returned to the woods and ordained each other to the Aaronic priesthood. In their study of the Bible, as well as their translation of the ancient record, Joseph and Oliver had often read about the authority to act in God's name. Now they carried that authority themselves. After their baptism, Joseph and Oliver found that scriptures that once seemed dense and mysterious suddenly became clearer. Truth and understanding flooded their minds. Back in New York, Oliver's friend David Whitmer was eager to learn more about Joseph's work. Though David lived in Fayette, about 30 miles from Manchester, he and Oliver had become friends while Oliver was teaching school and living with the Smiths. They often talked about the gold plates, and when Oliver moved to Harmony, he promised to write David about the translation. Letters started arriving a short time later. Oliver wrote that Joseph knew details about his life that no one could have known except by revelation from God. He described the Lord's words to Joseph in the translation of the record. In one letter, Oliver shared a few lines of the translation, testifying of its truthfulness. Another letter informed David that it was God's will for him to bring his team and wagon to Harmony to help Joseph, Emma, and Oliver move to the Whitmer home in Fayette, where they would finish the translation. People in Harmony had become less welcoming to the Smiths. Some men had even threatened to attack them, and had it not been for the influence of Emma's family, they might have been seriously hurt. David shared Oliver's letters with his parents and siblings, who agreed to welcome Joseph, Emma, and Oliver into their home. The Whitmers were descendants of German-speaking settlers in the area, and had a reputation for hard work and piety. Their farm was close enough to the Smith home for a visit, but far enough away to keep thieves from disturbing them. David wanted to go to Harmony immediately, but his father reminded him that he had two days of heavy work to do before he could leave. It was planting season, and David needed to plow twenty acres and enrich the soil with plaster of Paris to help their wheat grow. His father said he ought to pray first to learn if it was absolutely necessary to leave now. David took his father's advice, and as he prayed, he felt the Spirit tell him to finish his work at home before going to Harmony. The next morning, David walked out to the fields and saw rows of dark furrows in ground that had been unplowed the evening before. Exploring the fields further, he saw that about six acres had been plowed overnight, and the plow was waiting for him in the last furrow, ready for him to finish the job. David's father was astonished when he learned what had happened. There must be an overruling hand in this, he said, and I think you had better go down to Pennsylvania as soon as your plaster of Paris is sown. David worked hard to plow the remaining fields and prepare the soil for a successful planting. When he finished, he hitched his wagon to a strong team of horses and set out for Harmony earlier than expected. Once Joseph, Emma, and Oliver moved to Fayette, David's mother had her hands full. 
Mary Whitmer and her husband Peter already had eight children between the ages of 15 and 30, and the few who did not still live at home resided nearby. Tending to their needs filled Mary's days with work, and the three house guests added more labor. Mary had faith in Joseph's calling and did not complain, but she was getting tired. The heat in Fayette that summer was sweltering. As Mary washed clothes and prepared meals, Joseph dictated the translation in an upstairs room. Oliver usually wrote for him, but occasionally Emma or one of the Whitmers took a turn with the pen. Sometimes, when Joseph and Oliver tired of the strain of translating, they would walk out to a nearby pond and skip stones across the surface of the water. Mary had little time to relax herself, and the added work and the strain placed on her were hard to bear. One day, while she was out by the barn where the cows were milked, she saw a gray-haired man with a knapsack slung across his shoulder. His sudden appearance frightened her, but as he approached, he spoke to her in a kind voice that set her at ease. "'My name is Moroni,' he said. "'You have become pretty tired with all the extra work you have to do.' He swung the knapsack off his shoulder, and Mary watched as he started to untie it. "'You have been very faithful and diligent in your labors,' he continued. "'It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened.' Moroni opened his knapsack and removed the gold plates. He held them in front of her and turned their pages so she could see the writings on them. After he turned the last page, he urged her to be patient and faithful as she carried the extra burden a little longer. He promised she would be blessed for it. The old man vanished a moment later, leaving Mary alone. She still had work to do, but that no longer troubled her. At the Whitmer farm, Joseph translated rapidly, but some days were challenging. His mind would wander to other matters, and he could not focus on spiritual things. The Whitmer's small house was always busy and full of distractions. Moving there had meant giving up the relative privacy he and Emma had enjoyed in harmony. One morning, as he was getting ready to translate, Joseph became upset with Emma. Later, when he joined Oliver and David in the upstairs room where they worked, he could not translate a syllable. He left the room and walked outside to the orchard. He stayed away for about an hour praying. When he came back, he apologized to Emma and asked for forgiveness. He then went back to translating as usual. He was now translating the last part of the record, known as the Small Plates of Nephi, which would actually serve as the beginning of the book. Revealing a history similar to the one he and Martin had translated and lost, the small plates told of a young man named Nephi, whose family God had guided from Jerusalem to a new promised land. It explained the origins of the record and the early struggles between the Nephite and Lamanite peoples. More important, it bore a powerful testimony of Jesus Christ and His atonement. When Joseph translated the writing on the final plate, he found that it explained the record's purpose and gave it a title, The Book of Mormon, after the ancient prophet historian who had compiled the book. Since he started translating the Book of Mormon, Joseph had learned much about his future role in God's work. In its pages, he recognized basic teachings he had learned from the Bible as well as new truths and insights about Jesus Christ and His gospel. He also uncovered passages about the latter days that prophesied of a chosen seer named Joseph, who would bring forth the Lord's word and restore lost knowledge and covenants. 
In the record, he learned that Nephi expanded on Isaiah's prophecy about a sealed book that learned men could not read. As Joseph read the prophecy, he thought of Martin Harris's interview with Professor Anton. It affirmed that only God could bring forth the book out of the earth and establish the Church of Christ in the last days. As Joseph and his friends finished the translation, their minds turned to a promise the Lord had given in the Book of Mormon and in his revelations to show the plates to three witnesses. Joseph's parents and Martin Harris were visiting the Whitmer farm at the time, and one morning Martin, Oliver, and David pleaded with Joseph to let them be the witnesses. Joseph prayed, and the Lord answered, saying that if they relied on him wholeheartedly and committed to testify of the truth, they could see the plates. You have got to humble yourself before your God this day, Joseph told Martin specifically, and obtain, if possible, a forgiveness of your sins. Later that day, Joseph led the three men into the woods near the Whitmer home. They knelt, and each took a turn praying to be shown the plates, but nothing happened. They tried a second time, but still nothing happened. Finally, Martin rose and walked away, saying he was the reason the heavens remained closed. Joseph, Oliver, and David returned to prayer, and soon an angel appeared in a brilliant light above them. He had the plates in his hands and turned them over one by one, showing the men the symbols engraved on each page. A table appeared beside him, and on it were ancient artifacts described in the Book of Mormon, the interpreters, the breastplate, a sword, and the miraculous compass that guided Nephi's family from Jerusalem to the Promised Land. The men heard the voice of God declare, These plates have been revealed by the power of God, and they have been translated by the power of God. The translation of them which you have seen is correct and I command you to bear record of what you now see and hear. When the angel departed, Joseph walked deeper into the woods and found Martin on his knees. Martin told him he had not yet received a witness from the Lord, but he still wanted to see the plates. He asked Joseph to pray with him. Joseph knelt beside him, and before their words were half uttered, they saw the same angel displaying the plates and the other ancient objects. "'Tis enough!' "'Tis enough,' Martin cried. "'Mine eyes have beheld, mine eyes have beheld.'" Joseph and the three witnesses returned to the Whitmer house later that afternoon. Mary Whitmer was chatting with Joseph's parents when Joseph rushed into the room. "'Father, mother,' he said, "'you do not know how happy I am.'" He flung himself down beside his mother. "'The Lord has caused the plates to be shown to three more besides me,' he said." They know for themselves that I do not go about to deceive the people. He felt as if a burden had been lifted off his shoulders. They will now have to bear a part, he said. I am not any longer to be entirely alone in the world. Martin came into the room next, almost bursting with joy. I have now seen an angel from heaven, he cried. I bless God in the sincerity of my soul that he has condescended to make me, even me, a witness of the greatness of his work. A few days later, the Whitmers joined the Smith family at their farm in Manchester. Knowing the Lord had promised to establish His words in the mouth of as many witnesses as seemeth Him good, Joseph went into the woods with his father, Hiram and Samuel, as well as four of David Whitmer's brothers, Christian, Jacob, Peter Jr., and John, and their brother-in-law Hiram Page. 
The men gathered at a spot where the Smith family often went to pray privately. With the Lord's permission, Joseph uncovered the plates and showed them to the group. They did not see an angel as the three witnesses had, but Joseph let them hold the record in their hands, turn its pages, and inspect its ancient writing. Handling the plates affirmed their faith that Joseph's testimony about the angel and the ancient record was true. Now that the translation was over and he had witnesses to support his miraculous testimony, Joseph no longer needed the plates. After the men left the woods and went back to the house, the angel appeared and Joseph returned the sacred record to his care.